Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Beloved, this morning, our reading comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel might be characterized as the one that presents Jesus as a second Moses the prophet and lawgiver. Commentators point out that the gospel seems to be organized around long episodes of teachings called discourses interspersed with action. The Beatitudes introduced the Sermon on the Mount, a collection of Jesus' teachings, and Matthew places the sermon at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Some would describe the Beatitudes as a stand, as a daring act of protest against the current order. And while Jesus cannot basically insist that we be poor in spirit or turn back time, he does invite all of us to look with new eyes and with humility. The phraseology used in the Beatitude harkens back to the Old Testament language and themes, but in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives them new meaning. Together, the Beatitudes present a new set of ideals that focus on love, and humility rather than force and mastery. They echo the highest ideals of Jesus' teachings on spirituality and compassion. Hear now these words from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
certain experiences in our lives that can be so momentous and so formative, if you will, that we would call them the important firsts. These are the moments in our lives that we'll never forget or that others who know us will never forget about us. The important firsts, those unique experiences in our lives that, that seem to be a turning point, like once this happens, uh, the, whole, the whole way forward is going to be different from the path that you have been taking so far. Can you think of some important firsts in your life, like the first day of school when you're a child, or your first kiss, or your first romantic crush followed by your first agonizing heartbreak, or your first job followed by your first layoff? Uh, the first time behind the wheel of an automobile, followed by your first speeding ticket. Uh, parents, you know that as your child reaches the age of about eight or nine months, people will invariably start asking the question, well, is she walking yet? Has she taken her first steps? Or is he talking? Uh, what was his first word? Important first. I'll never forget the first wedding I officiated as a pastor. I was so nervous, I tripped over every word and phrase and prayer in the ceremony. I was pretty sure that the marriage would come mercifully to an end before the ceremony even did. <laughs> but fortunately, the uh, groom had been married twice and he walked me through the whole thing. <laughs> every pastor, however, knows that there is one important first that tops them all, and that's your very first sermon. The first time you preach before a new crowd. And pastors should never underestimate the importance of a first sermon because you can only make a first impression once and that is true of your first sermon. It can be a defining moment. On the way out the door, people will ask each other, well, what did you think of the new preacher? And so the stakes are rather high with that first sermon, which is why I think the Gospel of Matthew dedicates three entire chapters to the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. It was such an important sermon that we have over the centuries come to know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And some say it's the best sermon anybody has ever preached. In fact, it opens with what's come to be known as the so-called Beatitudes, which are so beloved by people today that they'll stitch them in needlepoint and hang them on the walls of their homes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart. You've heard these. These are the very first words, according to Matthew, that Jesus preached in his very first sermon. And while they have brought a great deal of comfort and joy to those of us in the modern world, I think they must have confounded those who first heard these words preached on that mountain. And why is that? It's because what Jesus called blessed is pretty far from what we in today's world would call anything like a blessing. Uh, today people might say, I have been blessed with great health. 
Or somebody presumptuous might say, I have been blessed with great looks. Or I've been blessed with this great paying job or blessed with this success or prosperity or, or my achievements or notoriety. Have you ever noticed in this world when, when everything is going well and the sun is shining on us gently and the, the breeze is to our backs, we tend to describe our lives as being blessed. And this is not entirely wrong to think this way. Because if you read the Hebrew scriptures, that is the Old Testament, you'll find this kind of prosperity theology threaded all the way through, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, which prescribes here and there these blessings and curses based on primarily our ability to follow the commandments of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, what we encounter is this, follow these commandments and you'll be blessed with many children, and green pastures, and abundant crops, and overflowing granaries. You keep the the covenant of God. You follow the Torah. You do all the things that the Torah tells you to do, and you avoid those things which it says not to do, and you'll have great health, and a long life, and much laughter, and many friends, and lots and lots of goats, and cows, and babies, and grandbabies. This is Uh, what the Hebrews believed, and it's what many of us believe today. There is a thread of truth to this in the sense that everything, of course, that is good in our lives is a gift from God. And every day we get out of bed and we should say, wow, and thank you. Because it is all windfall. You could call that a blessing. Our problem is not believing that the good fortune that we have in our lives is God's blessing. The problem is understanding that the inevitable moments in our lives in which we experience misfortune and loss and weakness and vulnerability and scarcity and tragedy, our problem is believing that these are not signs of God's curse. In 30 years of ministry, I've sat with so many people who have experienced misfortune or tragedy and inevitably have asked the question that is unanswerable. What did I do to deserve this? Is God punishing me for something I've done? Jesus understood this this odd logic that comes from his ancient tradition. And he understood how this... uh, faith that equates into this this transactional theology, uh, it it helps us understand Jesus saying that when we perceive blessing as God's favor in our lives, that is, when we perceive fortune and good things as God's blessing, and when we perceive misfortune as God's wrath or curse, In that process, we end up turning our faith into into something like a divine vending machine in which we continuously drop our uh, good prayers and, and good deeds like coins, expecting in return to get some kind of snack sized blessing in our lives. Which is why the first sermon Jesus ever preached was so momentous. This was an important sermon because what he does is he turns this whole transactional theology on its head. And he describes the very people in the world that we would see as being cursed as the one 
who are blessed. Those that have gone through tragedy and misfortune, he says, those are the blessed among us, which is strange logic for us. Because what Jesus says is, in that experience of loss and misfortune, they are prepared and open and ready to receive the goodness of God. That is, they're empty enough to receive and long for good things, like peace, righteousness, justice, mercy. For us in the modern world to understand the Beatitudes, we have to approach them with a beginner's mind. We have to put all the conventional wisdom of our theology in the modern world aside for a moment. All these agendas and all these modern conventions about what it means to be blessed in this world have to be sidelined. And this is why Jesus begins this radical sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Is it hard for you to understand the logic of that? Another translation in the Greek here for blessed is the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit? Are you kidding me? Unless this is actually some kind of opening joke to a sermon, it's really a bad first line to a first sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Can you conjure in your mind right now an image of what somebody who is poor in spirit might look like? Somebody just weary and heavy. Somebody sad. Someone in whom the light has gone out. Someone in whom joy is absent. And Jesus says this is the person who's happy and blessed. What Jesus means here by poor in spirit is not someone who is necessarily sad or depressed or hopeless. Poor in spirit here really means an inner kind of humility a beginner's mind, a mindset that's absent of self-sufficiency and arrogance. I think poor in spirit is actually something that those in Alcoholics Anonymous really understand. It's really about the first step. That is the, the admission that one is powerless over their disease. And this admission of powerlessness is essential to the Christian life, says Jesus. The Greek word that Matthew uses for poor is the word tokoi, which, which really means the empty ones, or even those who are crouching, the slumping beggars, the invisible nobodies of the world who really have nothing left, who aren't so self-preoccupied or self-absorbed or full of themselves in any way. And Jesus is saying, As odd as it sounds, happy are you because you're free. If this sounds utterly counterintuitive to you, to think that the crouched over, the slumping, invisible ones uh, could be free and freer than those of us who are more esteemed and visible and standing tall, I want you to know that Jesus is not romanticizing the the lives of those who are poor. He's not romanticizing those that are downtown right now pushing their shopping carts full of rags and aluminum cans through the city streets. I think what Jesus is doing for those of us in this space is helping us see that by pointing to the empty ones, we can begin to look inside of ourselves to see how we're not so empty sometimes. We can begin to see all the ways that we fill ourselves with stuff that we don't need 
and with things that don't satisfy and all the ways that we numb ourselves and numb our deep longings with our shallow belongings to the extent that sometimes we get to a point where the things that we own start to own us. And I think Jesus says that's the unhappy life. Happy are the empty ones, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. But for those of us who are not so empty, maybe what he really means is unhappy are the ones who are so overstuffed and so self-satisfied that there's just no room to receive anything good. And so maybe what we have here in this first beatitude is a call to action to find ways to empty ourselves of that which we don't need. I knew a woman years ago in my very first church I served who would have made the list of Jesus' blessed ones. I uh, planted a church in Southern California. It was my first church. And um, the average age was about 32 years old. I was 24 at the time. I was the young one. And we planted this church and it was growing and, and active and vital. And this woman came into church one day and she was about 81 years old. Her son dropped her off and she walked in and over just a few weeks she instantly became the matriarch of this little church. Um, over the years, about four years later, she suffered a stroke. She had never missed a Sunday ever and she suffered a stroke, became paralyzed on her left side, but was homebound. And over the next few years, I would visit her at her home, and we watched the squirrels scamper along the backyard brick wall, and the hummingbirds dance around the theater. And as we would gather and meet together at her home, she would write with this little green notepad, because she couldn't talk. This is how we would communicate. She would write, she would show me, I would read it, I would think, I would respond, she would write a response to that. This is how we talked. Until one day it came that she could no longer eat. And she decided to forego the, uh, the implant for a feeding tube, acknowledging that this would likely uh, begin the process of her dying. And as we visited together in her backyard and discerned about this decision she was making, she wrote on her little green notepad the following words, can't walk, can't eat, can't talk. And then she showed me the green pad. I nodded. And then she wrote these words that I'll never forget. I am blessed. And I paused to reflect on the strange logic of that statement. Can't walk, can't eat, can't talk, I am blessed. And I knew in that moment that here in my presence was a living, breathing beatitude of Jesus, someone who possessed nothing, yet possessed everything. And who doesn't long for that kind of freedom? And so Jesus says, blessed are the empty ones and happy are the powerless ones. They have something call freedom. But it's not just those who are absent of possessions. Tokoi in the Greek, it also means those who are empty of ego, presumption, self-preoccupation. 
This is why I chose today this other passage from Matthew 18, in which Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom. Have you noticed that children, for the most part, are free from all that which tends to bind those of us who are adults? Very little pride, presumption, not a lot of ego in kids. They don't have a a real genuine sense of self-sufficiency. They don't really obsess over winning like we do. They don't really worry about tomorrow. They just get up and live. But maybe most of all, I think what, what children are mostly free of is all the labels that you and I tend to wear as we grow older, all the labels that define us and constrain us and bind us and limit us and conceal our true, true self. And the great mystic Thomas Merton Um, He he described those labels, if you will, as the false self. And what he said was the false self is that self or that persona that we project onto the world. It's the part of us that thinks we can live without God's grace and God's guidance. The false self is an amalgam, if you will, of of all the values and expectations the world puts on us. Uh, Culture, our education, our achievements, our jobs, our politics, our faith, our nationality. And the world tells us this is who you're supposed to be. And this is what will get you noticed and validated. And so we, throughout our lives, we take on all these labels. And over time, we assume that those labels really describe us. Christian, American, male, female, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, you know. All these labels, they stick to us over time. And we wear them through life and they actually get us through life. They're not all bad. In fact, they lead to great jobs. They lead to romance and love. And they lead to a sense of belonging, relationships and status. The problem is we begin to think this is who we really are. And that's when those labels take on a dark shadow. Because if those labels become our sole identity... We'll do anything to keep them. We might become striving or manipulative or clingy, coercive, deceptive. So that if successful is your chosen label, we might bend the rules a little bit to be successful. We might cut corners or undercut those who are climbing the ladder. If rich is our chosen label, we might be led to to cheat, to steal, to cook the books. If best mom or best dad ever in the world is your chosen label, you might spend a lot of time on Facebook bragging about your kids a little too much. You might uh, drive your kids to overachieve a little too much. You might helicopter or snowplow them along the way. Because this is what happens. We will do anything necessary in the moment to keep those labels and to get that validation. And so Jesus says, Blessed are those who are empty, those that have no labels, who can receive God's blessing. James Finley wrote a new book recently. It's called The Healing Path. And in that book, he tells this story that's taken from the tradition of the desert mothers and fathers. If you're not familiar with that tradition, there was a time in the first few centuries of the Christian church in which men and women would go to the desert to experience a sort of martyrdom or a dying from the old self, to experience new revelations of God in the desert. They were called desert mothers and fathers. 
And all the surrounding villages would often go, these people, to see the desert mothers and fathers, to learn from them and to glean from them new revelation. And in one story, this Christian hermit is in his hermitage when he hears a knock on the door and it's a mother and a father and a young child, a girl. And he welcomes them in and the parents say they've come to, to ask him to pray for their daughter because their daughter has been turned into a donkey by an evil wizard. And the hermit says, I see. And he invites the mother and father to sit off to one side as he begins to have conversations with the little girl. He asks her, are you hungry? Would you like something to eat? And he prepares a meal and sits down with her at a table and he just chats with this little girl about what's most important to her. And after a while, the parents as they observe what's happening, this, this genuine love expressed from a hermit with this little girl, their eyes are suddenly opened. And they realize that that wizard hadn't cast a spell on their daughter, turning her into a donkey. That wizard had cast a spell on them, making them believe that she was a donkey. And in seeing that their daughter was truly a little girl that they loved, They're filled with joy and tears. And as the parents leave with the daughter, they express gratitude to the hermit for what's happened. And their daughter, their daughter, according to the story, is grateful as well. Because it's really hard to be a little girl when your parents think you're a donkey. And it's especially hard to start to believe that that you're really a person when everybody around you expects you to be a donkey. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. You who are so empty of possessions that you can receive. You who are so free from the labels that you can hear your true self. Blessed are you who have enough and are enough and whose hands and hearts are open enough to receive that which God desires to give you. Our takeaways for today, life is windfall, but misfortune is never, never God's punishment. And to be blessed is to be free. We have enough and we are enough to inherit the kingdom today. Let us pray. Generous and ever faithful God, you have spoken to us through your inspired word. Now grant us the grace to not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Guide us from here to be and by your light of your spirit that we might believe and we might act on what has been revealed to us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.